0: Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willets Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. I'd like someone to rebrand the Mind the Gap campaign. Because, you know, it feels understated to me. I mean, it's, it's not a small thing. You know I mean it seems like it cuz it's just a little mind the gap you know that's the it's the warning that there's a gap between the train and the platform and you got to watch out for it and some platforms it's a big big gap and on other trains and you see other people they're like texting and the tra- the high speeds coming down and they're like standing on the the d of mind the gap you're like please back up you are making me nervous like don't you realize this is like not but I, and I don't think it would be a big deal like you could come up with like a whole series of pictures that I think could could give us like a better insight, like, ah, you know, like you're about to fall, right? That would be a fun one. Or maybe like a guy getting his foot stuck, he could be screaming, like, ah, I didn't mind the gap. Uh, you know, I saw it there, they told me, but I didn't know it wasn't such a big. I think you could do graphics like this, and I think people really would get the idea. They would stay back, they would, because the gap is kind of I actually, you could even do real pictures, which would be super effective of people. Coming of crashing through and like didn't mind the gap or something like that like you know th- we could really do a lot more with this campaign and i think new york would be a great way to beta test something more aggressive because of course the gap is a problem it's actually a problem in so much of life gaps between you and your family members and between you and society and problems between your co-workers and gaps like that but of course There's also a gap when it comes to our spiritual journey. There's a gap between the kind of society that God wants to build and the one that we've actually built. And there's a gap between what God says is good and what we say is good. And there's a gap between what we put our hope in and what God says we ought to put our hope in. And there's a gap between how we think we get to where we want to go and how God says we will actually get to where we want. We need to go. You see, there's a gap between us and God, and that gap destroys our hope. Destroys our hope. So how do we close the hope gap? This series, of course, has been a whole series on hope. And as Trevor said, we are wrapping it up today. And I, I do hope that the series was helpful for you. I hope it was challenging for you and we pray that it was significant in your journey and for me I told you originally the book of Ruth was one of my favorite books and I have really gotten a lot out of being able to study it with you guys over uh, the last couple of months uh, and I'm some and I'm also somehow sad to kind of see it go uh, because it has been a particularly insightful and challenging time for me personally in my journey. But by So what I want to do is kind of do a quick little review and frame where we've been and why as we remember some of the things that we've talked about and then push on into a couple of ideas to wrap up the series. So chapter 1 of Ruth is where it all began in... Uh, Ruth chapter one one we find out these were pretty tough times in the nation of Israel. It says in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And of course, that phrase, in the days the judges ruled, we'd seen that's a problematic period of time for the Israelites. This was there was a lot of really bad stuff happening. And so the fact that this is when the book was taking place is just a reminder that these are dark days for the nation of Israel. But more so, it was a tough time for this family that we're looking at in the book because this is when Naomi's husband and her two sons died. And so she's left as a widow and she is left only with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. So these were difficult times for her family as well. Then in chapters two and three, we find out that there is always still hope, even in the darkest days. And what we looked at was what we called the field of Boaz. And it was here that Boaz created something better than what was going on in the rest of society. And so if you take a look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 8, it says, So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. And this was great news because here there was something better on, in the field of Boaz than what was happening out there. You can see it again in chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said. That man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Wait, so something else is going on here, we learn. He's not just a nice guy who's letting, who's protecting Ruth when she's working out in the field, but he's actually a guardian redeemer, which leads Ruth in chapter three, verse nine, to approach Boaz more directly. Who are you? Boaz asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer in our family. So hope comes in the form of of a redeemer, or what they call a guardian redeemer. And this is a huge theme in this book and exceedingly important for us throughout the rest of the scriptures as well. But that brings us to chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9 of Ruth. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So God provided exactly what Ruth and Naomi needed, a guardian redeemer, a guardian redeemer. And in verse 13, we're introduced to this guardian redeemer, who at first, it sounds like it's Boaz, but really not exactly fully. He's the beginning of it, but it's really the child who will become the guardian redeemer. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord. Who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. This idea of a redeemer, again, shows up throughout the scriptures, and we kind of get an idea as to what it looks like when we kind of quickly study where we the where the idea shows up. So, like God is taking uh, Israel out of Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt. And when he does that, when he frees them from slavery, the scriptures say that they were redeemed. God redeemed them from slavery. The word shows up. If a person falls destitute and a family member comes along and helps them get their property back and helps them get reestablished in the land, that family member is said to have redeemed that person who was hurting. When Job spoke of a redeemer, it was someone who was going to rescue him from suffering and from heartache. If a guilty person is shown kindness rather than judgment, even if they didn't deserve the kindness, they're said to have been redeemed. People are even described as being redeemed from death, which is a mysterious concept in the Old Testament, but we don't we get a lot more information about it in the news. So the idea of a redeemer is the person who rescues. It's the one who saves. It's the one who gives us hope. And that's a very important topic for us, especially as we even think about the Hosanna that we sang about. It's a cry for God to save or for God to redeem us. And in this story, we know Boaz, of course, is a redeemer, but we also know that Ruth is a bit of a redeemer because without her, Naomi would still be left destitute. But of course, the story is really building toward Obed, the son of Boaz and Ruth who would grow up and become the promised redeemer. But all of this actually points to an even greater redeemer. Look at verse 16. Chapter four, sixteen. then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is, then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. So there are these different vantage points when it comes to how this story is experienced by different people. So if you were Ruth and Naomi, the part of this story that matters and where it feels like is really the climax is is Obed. Because in their lifetime, that's all they would have known. It's actually all they really needed. Is they needed their guardian redeemer, Boaz, to produce Obed, who would take care of them in their old age and protect them and redeem them. But the writers who wrote Ruth weren't thinking in terms of Obed. You see, the story ends with David because David was actually the hope. And not just for one family, not just for Naomi and Ruth, but David became the great King David, who was actually the hope of the entire nation of Israel. So that vantage point actually reveals to us what the story of Ruth is all about. It's an origins story about King David, which of course surprises us if we're not familiar with what's going on here in the story. And this, of course, is an amazing thing for us. It's a great promise for them because David was going to bring an end to the misery of the time of the judges. There's a a way to think about the nation of Israel, kind of how they experienced uh, the, the whole of creation up until this point. So you have at the very beginning the perfect creation in the Garden of Eden. And everything is going fantastic. We're close to God and each other and no sin has yet entered into the picture. And then the fall of humanity with our rebellion against God plummets us into this despairing place. And then for the next, say, 11 chapters in Genesis, we find out that humanity is tanking until Abraham. And the great Abraham gives us hope. Except that whole generation ended in slavery. So it didn't really last that long. But that's all right because Moses comes on the scene and he brings them to an even greater place than Abraham was able to, which is spectacular and so hopeful. He's taken them out of slavery and he's leading them toward the promised land and then they end up in the wilderness because of their brokenness, because of their sin, because of their hatred, because of their their pettiness. They end up in the wilderness. But Joshua leads them out of the wilderness and this is a high point as they sort of take start to take over the promised land only to see the whole thing fall apart at the period of the Judges. And that up and down period that's going all the way down that's marked Judges there, that's the period of the book of Ruth. So they've been through this cycle numerous times already. Now what hope is there? Well, the hope is given to us in King David, this righteous king, a just king kingdom a benevolent monarchy and Israel experiences more joy and peace and delight prosperity than they had ever thought possible but you see there's another vantage point it's from everybody who lived a generation after David because after David we find out that things tanked again There was fighting, and there was civil war, and there were divisions, and there was immorality, and there was idolatry, and it ends in the lowest point in the history of Israel, the exile, where they're not even in the promised land, and the temple of Solomon has been destroyed, hope crushed once more, and there's a gap that the Israelites could never quite close. And even if they thought they were getting close to it, they could never quite get back to what they had lost. Why? Every time it was because of sin. Sin in the human heart. Every time things start to improve, sin breaks in again and everything falls apart. Sin creates this ominous, gap. So the question becomes now for everyone, how do we deal with this sin issue? So Jesus, he comes on the scene and there's all sorts of different people who know the the, the history of Israel and they're all trying different ways of closing the gap between us and God that is caused by sin. All sorts of different groups. So for instance, one of the ways you can deal with it is to escape the influence of sinners. Just pull away from them altogether. Go up on a mountaintop and live in your monastic sort of community. And as long as you're separated from society, you'll be able to create the perfect society. That was the hope. That was the hope of the Essenes. And some of you have heard their names because they're famous now for the Dead Sea Scrolls because they took a lot of notes and they saved them in the caves. So that was great news for us because it's fantastic. It's also the only real reason we know the Essenes because, of course, they pulled away from society. And they went and hid in the mountains. And this Qumran community was trying to escape from it. And if, I think they were kind of expert escapers, right? I'm not sure all of us go quite to that length, but this idea of escaping is somehow a part of us. In fact, we even have games now, right? We have escape rooms, which I haven't, has anybody done an escape room yet? We have, all right, we have quite a few people who've done. I haven't done it yet because I sort of feel like if I want to do it, I want to nail it, and so I'm nervous that I got to like pick the right people who are smarter than me and have a different gift set, and like we can get out because I don't want to go there and be like, yeah, well, actually, we couldn't get out. Like I had to hit the panic button or something. I don't even know if there is a panic button. So anyway, you know, but we do this sort of a thing where we're like, we want to escape, and I think in some ways this is really helpful for us to know because if we're trying to escape, could you tell them I'm busy? Just if that's my dad, tell them I'm I'm always busy Sunday morning. Good. If you, so, you know, we think about these, like this idea of escaping, and it was like, you know, it dawns on you that, that we've been trying to get out ever since we were like first born, right? And so like, we, like they literally stuck us in a cage. Um, like, how, what is that about? Like, we're like, bars. And so now we're trying to escape. And then what we end up doing is not unlike what the Essenes were trying to do. And I know Christians throughout history who have tried that. I mean, personally, I know them in my own life. And also we see it throughout history where groups of Christians pull away into monastic little, little collections of people or they, they pull away in lifestyle. They pull away in, in all of these things because they don't want to be influenced negatively by the world. I know Christians that will actually, they'll cut out all of their non-Christian friends. What? Well, you got to. I mean, you know, they're not living like I am. Yes, because they're not Christians. You know, I know others who say, I'm moving, I'm getting out of this area. You know, this area is just filled with too many pagans. Well, where are you going to go? North Carolina? What are you going to do? Like, what is, like, this is actually where the work is then. But instead, we try to escape. You can also fight. That's always another strategy. You can fight the sinners. There was a group of people we've seen in history, the fundamentalist movement in the 40s and 50s. There was the moral majority and Pat Robertson and guys like that. You know, they were they were raging against everyone, it seemed. Jesus had a group in his day as well. They were called the Zealots and the Zealots wanted to overthrow Rome and kick him out of the Holy Land. And they said, if we do that, then we'll have a perfect society. Then everything will work. Then we'll close the gap. Finally, they tried it. Maccabees, Justice Maccabees. They tried it. In fact, they had some great success in it. They kicked the Greeks out, and you know the Romans hadn't come to full power yet. And they're, you know, this was a good day. It looked like they were finally going to win the fight against the unjust societies that were oppressing them. But of course, it wasn't long before they started fighting, and wars broke out among them. Because sadly, life is often like a Greek tragedy, right? We. We actually end up falling by the same methods that we were fighting against, by the same things that we were raging against. They're often the things that actually pull us down. You know, it might be be cute to see, you know, a kid with his hand caught in a cookie jar, right? But you know how many times there are champions of a cause who end up committing the same atrocities that they're fighting against? how often this takes place, but you're actually fighting the fight. How many times does a, is a pastor caught with his hand in the cookie jar? Not a month goes by where you're not going to find some high-profile pastor, uh, you no know, national, international recognition, who's now being, being shamed out of ministry because of some things that he had been doing wrong. See it all the time now. That's just the big guys who get in the news. You can imagine how often it's going on, not in the news. He right, doesn't make the big scenes. How often about the, the, very, the very ones who are raging against certain things are actually caught in those same things. And I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at them. I'm just pointing out that this is part of the human problem. I mean, it's not just in the church, right? The Me Too movement. How long did it take before a few of their, their major champions ended up being accused and guilty of the very things that they had been fighting against? You're like, what just happened? I don't even understand how this could be. That's like way worse than Bernie being a millionaire, you know? But it's like that. It's that sort of an idea. We rage against it. It doesn't actually work. We can also make more rules about sin. Super popular way of trying to deal with it. If you have more rules, then we will have a perfect society. Jesus had this group, of course. The Pharisees were doing this. They're saying we can't obey the law because we lack specifics. And if we have a lot more rules, then people will be able to finally obey the law. Cheryl, So Cheryl drives when we're together in the car because she, she drives better than me and I don't drive well. So anyway, so she drives. And so we were parking in Oyster Bay and she pulled in, she parked the car and she's like, hey, could you go out and read the signs? And I was like, oh yeah, I'll go out and I'll read the signs. So I, I got out, I read the signs and she said, so can we park here? Yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. I just, I quit. I gave it up. This is, I actually took this picture. I'm like, I just, just get the ticket. We'll just pay the ticket. It just, it's no big deal. Just leave the car. We're uh, not going to deal with it because yeah, because lots more rules are actually going to help us obey the law. That's what you guys are experiencing right now, right? You're getting your taxes ready. So you're ready, right? Because, you know, it's just so, more rules has helped you with your clarity. You know, almost every single one, I'm sure every one of you is breaking a tax law. We just don't know them. They're just, impossible. the experts don't even know them anymore because there's too many thousands of pages. More rules. I don't know why anyone really thinks that more rules are going to help us stop breaking the rules. <laughs> maybe you can try harder. There was a group of people, the holy ones, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, maybe Even Joseph and Mary came from this tradition. They were called the Hasidim, the holy ones. And they knew that the problem was personal sin. And so they thought the solution would be personal holiness. And they were close. They were trying and they tried really, really hard. And it was great to do. I'm sure it was an admirable effort. If you try harder, we will have a perfect society. The problem is that's sort of what we've been doing all along. Every step of the way, we tried a little harder with Abraham. We tried a little harder with Moses. We tried a little harder with Joshua and with David. And we make more and more promises only to break more and more promises. So then you get fed up, you get tired, you get exhausted. And you can just simply lower the expectations. Jesus had a group of people that were redefining what the perfect society would even look like. They're called the Sadducees. They were part of the aristocracy or the high priesthood, the Sanhedrin was made up. And they just thought, that's actually unrealistic. It would be better for us to really accommodate culture as we find it. And not really where, of course, when you're at the top of the heap, it's easy to want to keep the status quo. (laughs) When you have all the status and all the privilege, it's a lot easier to say, you know what, don't, the rest of you, hoi polloi, you shouldn't be getting all uptight. Let's just kind of lower the bar here and be all right with the way things are playing out. Let's maintain our relationship with Rome and appease them. And let's, you know, integrate with the dominant culture. It just feels so defeatist and elitist to me. And ironically, each one of these strategies led to its own failure. The Essenes became irrelevant They're not doing anything. They're not engaged in any way. They're not doing the work that God has called them to do. We have the zealots who ended up being the haters. They brought the wrath of Rome down on Israel and finally and ultimately destroyed them and the next temple. We also know that the Pharisees were well known to be judgmental and harsh and hypocritical. And we know that the Hasidim would be laden with guilt because they kept trying harder but kept... Failing and of course, the Sadducees were simply lukewarm and became meaningless. So Jesus comes on this scene. These were the groups that He was actually engaging with when he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And he doesn't fulfill any of their hopes. He disappoints every single group. And he says to the Essenes, he says, listen, God has come down to be with sinners, not to pull away. He tells the haters that God loves the sinners. And he told them that his kingdom isn't of this world to keep paying taxes to, C- to Caesar. To the Pharisees, he let them know that it's not about outward conformity, but it's about an inner transformation because sin is still in your heart's Now, to the Hasidim, you'd think he was going to offer them some sort of encouragement because they seem like the kind of people that we want to be. Try a little harder. But to them, he said, actually, your sin means that you will never be good enough. He seems to, at this point, put even more guilt upon them. And to the Sadducees, he said, listen, your sin is deadly serious. Way more serious because it actually does have consequences that aren't merely temporal but are eternal because there really is an afterlife. And what you do here does matter for all of time. He's raising the stakes. None of these are satisfactory solutions, which is why Jesus has to disappoint everyone. And that's why, of course, we always lose hope because sin is too formidable an enemy. I mean, where are you at? I bet you're already thinking it. As you work through these, maybe, you're, maybe you do one or two of these. Maybe you've tried all five over the course of your life and how to close that gap. Maybe even today you're like, I tried to fight. I tried to be really good. I couldn't do any of those things, and now I am just kind of gave up. Maybe you just worked your way right through them all, and Jesus is disappointed because of that. Because you've never actually dealt with the issue. And that's what brings us to Palm Sunday. Because Jesus rides into Jerusalem. In John chapter 12. It says the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival. Heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written do not be afraid daughter Zion. See your king is coming seated seated on a donkey's colt. See, Jesus disappoints everyone. He doesn't give them the hope that they wanted. He gives them instead the hope that they needed because he is actually the promised king. And he is about to do the unthinkable. The promised king, he claimed it himself by fulfilling that prophecy. And he comes walking in, riding in, humbly on a donkey. And he says, listen, in the next week, I'll be laying down my life for you. The king will die for the subjects of the kingdom. Unthinkable. No one is going to be happy with that result. The Essenes are going to ignore him, and the zealots will fight him, and the Pharisees will judge him, and the Hasidim will actually fail him, and the Sadducees are aimlessly going to drift away. So, how is it that we can mind the gap? And Jesus says, Because I've dealt with the sin issue. My my first appearance here, my coming here as the king on a donkey, was because I was going to lay down my life as a sacrificial offering. There is no more gap between you and God. Jesus, the promised king, came and dealt decisively with the sin issue. And now we don't need to to run and hide and we don't need to fight others or be harsh or judgmental or crushed by guilt or we don't need to walk away in lukewarm defeat. Because the king has dealt with the sin issue, the issue of the heart. He laid down his life and he gave us the true hope from heaven. But now you look out about in the world and you go, yeah, but that's great. But there's still a gap between how I'm experiencing and what's going on in the world. There's still sin and heartache and misery all around us. And Jesus says that's because the full hope of the kingdom isn't yet here. It has begun in you, but it isn't yet fully realized. Because what we didn't know then, but from this vantage point after Christ, we now get to see in the story. It wasn't going to end with David and it wasn't even going to end with the true king coming and laying down his life. The first time he came, he came on a donkey. But the book of Revelation says he's coming on a white war horse. That he will, in fact, return again. And that the promise of the perfect world is going to be fulfilled when the true king returns the second time. When the descendant of Ruth and Boaz, the child who will come from Obed's line, who is the true King David, the beloved. When that happens, he will finally make all things right. He's closed the gap and he's promised that he will return a second and a final time. He announced it. He promised it. He proved it through the power of the resurrection that the war against sin will finally end be one, that we don't need to escape anything, that we don't need to to worry about rules because in fact, the the word of God will be written on our hearts and we will do it with joy. And There isn't going to be any more sin and no more compromise and no more struggle and, and we don't have to worry about being good enough. We're not going to be good enough. We're going to be perfectly spotless. His perfect bride, made so by the king himself. There was a day when Christians used to live with anticipation for that day. You know, he promised that he's going to return and nothing yet has, nothing remains to be fulfilled. He can return at any time. He can literally return before the end of this service. The scriptures have offered us this promise time and again. So we can stop trying to close the gap by our own effort. We have to put our hope in the defeat of sin that happened at the cross so that we can put our hope in what comes next when the king returns and wipes away every tear, restores justice to the land, brings hope to the hopeless. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Lord, we're asking that that day would come. We used to pray a prayer, Maranatha, acclaim, Lord, a claim, Lord, a hope that you would come and come quickly. Lord, that's what we hope for now. You came on Palm Sunday. You were rejected by the people. Within a week's time, they put you to death. Lord, we, we participate in that guilt through our sin. And yet in our sin, you so loved us. And while we were yet sinners, you died for us. But Lord, that isn't where the story ends. You've promised us that the King returns again. Our souls long for it. Our hearts cry out to it. Father, we want it so bad to see an end to the suffering and the misery, to see the fulfillment of your promises, to see hope lived out. Lord, we want it. We pray for it. We long for it. May we rest our confidence in you for that great day. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.